start by describing one of the subtleties of our enemy, Satan, his attack against us. One of the subtleties of the demonic world is using affliction as one of his primary weapons. It's not so much that the enemy can destroy you, um, not right out, because the reality is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So since he cannot destroy you, he will send wave after wave of affliction to wear you out and to cause the creative, inventive, dreaming part of your mind to go numb. Problem after problem, storm after storm, wave of trouble after wave of trouble to where when you come out of one thing, you want to take a deep breath, but you can't because right behind the thing you just finished fighting, here comes something else. And it is the strategy of affliction. You can have affliction all kind of ways. You can have a physical affliction in your health. You can have an emotional affliction. You can have a mental affliction. You can have the affliction of demonic oppression where the enemy sends evil spirits to bombard your house and bombard your mind and keep you from peace. You can have an affliction of generational curses where things that hurt you from family members in the past, now you see starting to replicate themselves in future generations and the generation that's coming up behind you. And it's, it's affliction after affliction after affliction, not designed to kill you because he can't, but designed to switch your mind from the mindset of a conqueror who takes ground, who advances, who moves forward, who takes dominion, who begins to move their life forward by faith in God. He wants to take you out of that, and he wants to make success survival to the point where you think you're winning if you just made it through the day. You're clapping and celebrating and thanking the Lord, not for the new territory you've taken, not for how you've advanced, not for how you move forward. You're clapping, shouting, thanking the Lord just because you made it through the day. Because the affliction is so blinding and it's so painful that it's all you think about when you wake up in the morning. It's all you think about when you lay your head down at night. It's just steady stream of pain and misery and difficulty in a circumstance that feels like it will not break. It's called the subtle strategy of affliction. And some of you may not even realize that you've been fighting the devil. Hollywood has tricked you into thinking the devil has horns and a pitchfork. But the reality is the greatest manifestation you will ever see of Satan himself is the waves of affliction that you go through in your life. And and it's a strategy, and we all face it to some degree or another. But there is a divine flip side to affliction. The Bible says that when God sees the enemy afflicting his people, that God sends the blessing of multiplication. Look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 12. 
And I'll show you just a couple of these. I could go all through the Bible, but for time's sake, just a couple. Exodus chapter 1, verse 12. You can use good old King James if you want, or New King James. The scripture says, speaking of the Egyptians, while the Israelites were under their bondage, the scripture says, the more. Everybody holler, the more. Holler like you had some coffee. The more. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Just so you don't think that's an isolated thing in Scripture, let me show you Genesis 29, 31 and 32. Totally different scenario, totally different group of people. But it says, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, watch this, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. So whenever the enemy sins affliction, God always takes notes. And the more you are afflicted and the more you are hated, the more God will bless and multiply you. It always seems like that, that the people that are against you have to watch you multiply and watch you get blessed in the face of their hatred. Because hating a child of God is a dangerous proposition. Because the more you hate me, the more God will bless me just because you hated me. Everybody holler, the more. The more. The point is, throughout Scripture, we see a trend that God responds. He takes notes on your affliction, and he responds by sending multiplication. However, it's possible to be in a season where your blessings are being multiplied, but you don't even feel blessed because of the affliction. Affliction can blind your mind to just how blessed you really are. Sometimes you can be growing and multiplying and not even be aware of it. Because the only thing that your mind can calculate is how bad it hurts right now. To prove this and illustrate this, let me give you an example of the children of Israel while they were under the bondage of Egyptian slavery. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 21, the scripture is recounting how many households, how many people were there in Egypt under bondage. And the scripture says, Moses said, the people, the people, everybody say the people, the people among who I am are 600,000 footmen. Okay. Everybody say 600,000 men. Now, in antiquity, the census takers didn't count women and children. So when it says 600,000 men, it's talking about, you know, each man represents a household. So it's talking about 600,000 households. So if, if conservatively you, you know, do a deduction and you say, well, if there is one woman and one child for every man that constitutes a household, you've got a minimum, conservatively, of 1.8 million people. Now, 
A lot of times we read the story of the Exodus and the Passover and all these things that God did, but we don't think about the details, and the divinity is in the details. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, look at this. I want to show you something you may have never considered. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. God said, this is the Passover. He said, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father. Watch this. A lamb for a, let's say it again, a lamb for a household. Do you remember how many households were in Egypt? Oh, you're sharp. So if I got to have a lamb for every house, how many lambs do I need? Now, I'm not awesome at math or biology. But the Bible said in this Passover description, they had to be lambs of the first year, meaning they, they couldn't be more than a year old. So if you got to have 600,000 lambs of the first year to offer as a sacrifice, in order to get a lamb, you got to at least have a mama you sheep and a daddy ram. That means conservatively, there were 1.8 million in the herd of Israel's livestock, not their total livestock, just their sheep. Meaning, while they were experiencing the affliction of Egyptian bondage, not only did God multiply the number of the Hebrews, he also multiplied the number of their livestock. He gave them a nation's worth of animal wealth while they were in bondage. They weren't allowed to manage their own animals and upkeep their own animals. They had to manage and upkeep all of the things of the Egyptians. And while they weren't able to look after and properly invest in their herds, God gave them a nation's worth of sheep, of sheep, while they were in bondage. Just, just to add credence to this idea, by contrast, the nearest neighboring nation of free people there was a lot of slavery in the scripture, but the nearest neighboring nation of free people was the nation of Moab. In Numbers chapter 31, the Bible tells us the total animal wealth, not just sheep. You add up all of their animals, oxen, cattle, horses, go everything. The total animal wealth was just 675,000 animals. And they were free people with nothing to do but to think about how they could grow their herds. Israel has almost triple the amount of sheep while they're bound than the free people do of total animals while they're loose. They were blessed in their affliction, but didn't notice it because of the numbness of their pain. By all natural equations they should have been impoverished but God forced their economy to open point number one first prophecy I have for Christian world this morning God is forcing your economy to open 
God is forcing your economy to open. Lift up both your hands and say, open. When I say your economy, please do not misunderstand me. I'm not talking about the economy of the nation that you live in. The economy of Egypt had nothing to do with the growth and multiplication that was on the Hebrews. The economy of this nation has nothing to do with the fact that God is about to open your personal economy. Everybody say, open my economy. Don't judge your economic potential based on what's going on in the nation. Don't judge your economic potential based on what's happening in the news and what everyone is saying. Don't judge your economic potential based off who is in office. Those are statements that lack faith and understanding. When you are a child of God, you can be in such a terrible nation that they have enslaved you and they're refusing to let you look after your own affairs and God will still bless you with three times the wealth as other people that don't have the problems that you have. God is opening your economy. Everybody holler, open! open. 1.8 million sheep. If you Google what does a sheep cost today in our current society and you just want to compare, okay, you'll find out they had five hundred million dollars worth of sheep and then they had similar numbers in cattle in goats in horses in camels okay. they were blessed and didn't know it far more blessed than their circumstances allowed them to see is it possible you are far more blessed than you feel? Is it possible God's been far better to you than how you've noticed? I came to tell you, you may need to count your blessings and add them all up because it's very possible that you haven't noticed how blessed you are because of how much pain you've been going through. It could be possible that you hadn't thanked God for how good he's been to you because of the amount of pain that you've been going through. And, and so God gets, God gets frustrated. Are you following me? So God gets frustrated with them because all they see is the pain. They haven't even noticed the prosperity. Okay. So God starts thinking, what do I need to do to get you out of the numbness of the affliction for just a moment to notice the power that I have given you? And they're blind how blessed they are, not, not just because of the numbness of the affliction, but also because they are comparing their wealth with the wealth of their Egyptian oppressors. If the enemy cannot get you to turn a blind eye to how good God has been to you through affliction, then he will get you to turn a blind eye to how good God has been to you by seducing you to compare your stuff with the stuff of this world. Getting to compare your life with the life of people in this world. David, he fell prey to it. He said, how is it that the wicked prosper? You'll be living for God, trying to do everything you can to do the right thing, and then you'll look at the drug dealer 
dealer rolling by in a new car and your car got repossessed two months ago and you'll be saying, how is it possible I can be serving God and living for God and the wicked are doing so bad? It is the trick of the enemy, one of the subtleties of Satan to cause you to ignore your own blessing by comparing where you are with the people of this world. And so you may be more blessed, but you may not. So God said, okay, I'm going to show, I'm going to show you Israel. I'm going to show you how powerful I've made you. And he does it by removing the comparison. Look at this, Exodus chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Put your eyes on this word. This is crazy. So the Lord did this thing. I just like the way that starts. So the Lord did this thing on the next day. And all the livestock of Egypt oh, yeah. so the Lord I feel your anointing already so the Lord did this thing on the next day everybody say in one day all the livestock of Egypt died but of the livestock of the children of Israel not one died in one day, God crippled the Egyptian economy. In one day, God shifted the balance of power. In one day, God brought Egypt down and lifted Israel up in one day. I declare God is about to lift you. I declare God is about to lift this community. I declare God is about to lift your influence. I declare God is about to lift your number of clients. I declare God is about to lift your number of opportunities. I declare God is about to lift you. And the enemy is coming down in this region, in the families of this church, in this area, in this zip code. The enemy is coming down. So, so the story overall of the Exodus takes on new light and it may offend your sensibilities when you think it through the lens of the details. Because the story of the Exodus wasn't just about a Pharaoh with a hard heart that was fighting God. Pharaoh wasn't that spiritual. The story that made the Exodus so powerful had really not much to do with spirituality. Pharaoh wanted to keep them because they had all the wealth. Exodus 10, 24. Exodus 10, 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, okay, go, serve the Lord. Uh, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. And your little ones, they can go with you too. You and your kids, y'all can all go. Just leave your flocks and herds. Why? Because he had just lost all of his. Exodus 10, 26. Moses said, our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof. God, our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left 
behind. In other words, Moses said, yeah, we're going to go worship the Lord. And yeah, we're going to take our children with us. But we are also taking our wealth. We're also taking our money. We're also taking our stuff. And point number two, God is forcing. God is forcing your deliverance open. Say it again. Just God is forcing your deliverance open. Now, now just, just stay with me one more minute. I'm almost done, actually. Okay? Let me offend you. Let me bother you for a second. Opening up the Red Sea for the people to cross on dry land was not... God's original plan to get them out of Egypt. I just read it to you. He had blessed them with enough wealth. And then he had destroyed the wealth of Egypt to the point where they could have financed their own liberation struggle against the Egyptians. They had enough wealth to send a couple of scouts to a nearby nation and say, we'll pay you to come attack Egypt, and while they're fighting, we're going to bounce. But it never occurred to them. Affliction has a way of closing your mind to your own exit strategies. So they struggled. Hallelujah. Longer than they had to in a situation they were strong enough to get themselves out of. They had more people than Egypt. If they wanted to fight hand to hand, they could have. They had the numbers advantage. And they had more power, more might than Egypt. Let me prove it to you. Exodus chapter 1 verse 9. Look what the enemy said about these people. About these people who were enslaved. Look what the enemy said. Pharaoh said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier. So there's more of them, and even if there wasn't, they're stronger people. I wonder, have you ever been enslaved by something that was smaller than you? I wonder, with, with the spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead living in you, I wonder what's holding you that you already have the power to break. Held, can't move because of a substance you paid for. By a relationship with a silly person you know ought to be cut out of your life. Held by their manipulation. Controlled by what they say and what they do. And controlled by their attitudes. And you are up under the affliction of the dominance of things that you are stronger than. God didn't want to open the Red Sea. That wasn't his first creative idea. 
his first creative idea is, I tell you what, I see him being afflicted. I see him being wounded. I see him up under the person or, or the, the people of Egypt's bondage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to multiply them and grow them and increase them until they get big enough that they can take the chains away from the Egyptians and the whips away from the Egyptians and the weapons away from the Egyptians, that they can rise up from poverty and start taking dominion and say, leave me alone or else. That was God's plan. But affliction will blind you to how strong you are. And it will cause you to allow little things to push you around. Little things to put a whip on your back. Little things to drive you crazy in your own house. Little things to cause you to be in a nice bed but can't sleep. Little things. the strategy of affliction. God wanted them to come out. God blessed them so they could come out. Have you ever stayed too long in a bad situation? Maybe you're sitting in this room right now. You've been in that thing way too long. You've been dealing with that demonic oppression in your life way too long. You've been dealing with that mess in your family way too long. You've been dealing with that problem way too long. You've been dealing with that affliction way too long. You've been dealing with those ties on your hands way too long. And you need an announcement to be made. You've been strong enough. Israel didn't have a power problem. They had the power. They had a will problem. What do you do when God's given you the power to break it, but you don't have? You know what the answer is? What you do when you don't, you have the power, but you don't have the will. You know what you do? You stay way too. But the comforting part is, God will bless you in affliction, and God will raise you up, and God will make you strong enough to get yourself out. But when you won't, because your mind is thinking too low for what you're trying to come against, God will only let one of his children stay so long in that season of affliction. Because when you won't get yourself out, point number two, God will force your own deliverance. The parting of the Red Sea was not plan A. It was plan B. When God got tired and said, if I've blessed them this much and they still can't see, they're strong enough to come out, then I will go and force a deliverance and bring them out myself. I will open the waters of the Red Sea and lead them out by myself. God is forcing deliverance. You've been in that thing too long. God sent me here to tell you he did his part years ago. You didn't respond to it. But today is the day on Rosh Hashanah. God's coming to get you. God is opening your deliverance. He's opening a door. He's opening something that said it wouldn't open. He's opening something unnatural. Your door of deliverance is open. Throw your hands up and holler, open! Give God praise in the house this morning. (laughs) 
Don't be so resistant to the language. I'm saying force. Your grandmama used to say, he'll make a way. He'll make a way is the same as saying, he will force a way. And I came to tell you, God's going to get your daughter out if she has to go kicking and screaming. God's going to get your grandchildren out if they have to go kicking and screaming. God's going to get your husband out, your wife out, if they have to go kicking and screaming. This is a forced move. This is a forced thing. This is a forced deliverance. He's opening the door. And I will pray for you. And I will speak the name of Jesus. And I will call on God on your behalf. But this is not something that you have to get in a prayer line to receive. This is something God's doing by himself for his children. This is something God's doing by himself. God got sick and tired of the devil picking on his kids. He said, all right, I tried to get them to do it themselves. But since they didn't, you ain't going to beat on them no more. You ain't going to talk down to them no more. You ain't going to restrict them no more. God is coming to get you. I don't know where you are in this room, but if you can hear me, it's for you. God is coming to get you. He's opening the door of deliverance. If you want deliverance, you can throw up your hands and say, God, I'm right here. God, I receive it. I don't want to have the dreams no more. I don't want the thoughts no more. I don't want the emotional pain no more. I don't want the soul tie no more. I don't want the drugs no more. I don't want the den no more. I want my deliverance. He's opening the door of deliverance. He's opening the door of deliverance. He's opening the door of deliverance. That child of yours that was bound for jail, God's opening the door of deliverance. That family member of yours that was bound for hell, God is, God is, God is, God is. He's opening the door of He's opening your husband's hard heart. He's opening your wife's hard heart. He's, oh, pay attention to your kids. He's opening up your children's hard heart. He's opening a door of deliverance. He's opening the door for the drug addict. He's opening the door for the criminal. He's opening the door for the thief. He's opening the door for the habitual liar. He's opening the door. He's opening the door. It's not the first time. It's not the first time he did it. In the Old Testament, he made a way. He made a way for fallen man to operate by a law and sacrifice system to pull himself out 
of the affliction and the bondage of sin. However, man could not recognize how strong God had made them. So we stayed in the bondage of sin and degradation thousands of years until Jesus, God's door of deliverance, Jesus hung on a wood cross and he died a sinner's death. And the Bible says when a Roman soldier came over to him and stuck a spear in his side, Paul refers to the side of Jesus as a door. That when he pierced the side of Jesus, the veil in the temple that kept out the presence of God from the presence of the people was torn from the top to the bottom. Once again, just like he did in the Old Testament, God comes in the New Testament when you couldn't get it right, when you couldn't grow up, when you couldn't pull yourself up, when you couldn't understand how blessed you are, when you couldn't understand the opportunity that was made available to you God forced a door open by allowing his only begotten son to be pierced in the side what was God doing he was forcing deliverance to the point that he said whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved shall be delivered it's forced deliverance and then finally Number three, God is forcing your promise to open. He's forcing your promise to open. You don't hear this preacher. He's forcing your promise to open. God forced their economy to open. God forced their deliverance to open. But there's, there's a doctrinal little, little caveat you need to know. With God, after deliverance always comes promise. This side didn't hear me. Everybody just left and just must have been taking notes. I said after deliverance always comes promise. Me, he'll take you out and then he'll give you a promise. This is what I'm about to do. I said he'll take you out and then he'll give you a promise. Tell you this is what I'm about to do. Why does promise always come after deliverance? So you won't go back to what he delivered you from. So, God has pulled them out by a forced deliverance, but then he tells Moses, get up and prophesy, give him a promise, tell him some good stuff that I'm about to do. So that he can fill their mind that the journey, though difficult, is worth it. So, in our text, Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses gets up. And this is just an excerpt from Moses' sermon. He's preaching a prophecy like I'm doing today. He's just preaching a prophecy. He's just preaching a prophecy. You ought to have a pastor every now and then that won't just preach theology or doctrine. He'll preach a prophecy. And, and so in Deuteronomy 8, 7 and 8, he starts talking about the land God is giving you is full of brooks, streams, and deep springs. Let me give you revelation for this. Multiple sources of income is coming to the families in this church. Listen to me. 
multiple streams of income. It's part of your promise. God is opening this promise. I said God is opening this promise. You better hear me with your spirit. Multiple streams of income. In fact, say it with me. Pat yourself and say, multiple streams of income. Brooks, streams, deep springs. Brooks, streams, deep springs. In other words, different, different kind of, of aquatic life live in each, each different kind of water source. God was giving them options. Where they had only had manna and quail, manna and quail, manna and quail, manna and quail. Don't, no, no matter how good manna is on about the 700th day of eating it. Don't matter how good quail is. You can fix it all different kind of ways. You eat it long enough, you never want to see another quail again for the rest of your life. And some of your mental diet and emotional diet and emotional circle and relationship circle, it's just been man and quail, man and quail. Man. Same people, same problems, same things, same days, same weeks, same years, same, same, same. So sick of same. Look at me like you ain't never been sick of the same thing. Don't look at your spouse right now. Look at me. He said, I've been feeding you just one type of diet, okay? But the place I'm leading you to, multiple streams of income. Next, he says wheat and barley. Wheat and barley, you'll have to study the life of Gideon and his dream. I can show it to you, but I don't have time. Wheat and barley speaks of revelation knowledge, creative ideas, and invention. We will have a church of creative geniuses. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Right here at 6633 Walsham Road. God is going to touch people. God's going to touch our children. He's going to touch our teenagers. He's going to touch our members. We will have people sitting in this room right now develop several patents. We will have millionaires in this room. We will have business owners that get rich off of selling their business in this room because of revelation, creative ideas, and invention. Vines, vines in the scripture always speaks prophetically of new wine or spiritual renewal. It's been a long time for some of you since you've been renewed spiritually, especially those of you who serve, especially those of you who are in leadership. One of the greatest gifts God can give you as a leader, if you've walked with the Lord for a long time, and it's not a lot of you, I get it, that's okay, but if you've walked with the Lord a long time, and you've heard all the messages, and you've read the Bible from cover to cover several times, and, and, you, and you've been taught well, and you understand your doctrine, and you're on a firm footing. One of the most beautiful things God can give you is a spiritual renewal, a new wine, an oil change, you know, where you begin to see the things you already know from an entirely different and newer perspective. 
and the revelation spiritually begins to deepen. Your prayer life begins to thicken up. The passion that you approach God with begins to mirror that of when you were a young Christian, except now you have the benefit of the knowledge that you've gained over a life of walking with the Lord. Spiritual renewal. Everybody holler, spiritual renewal. A room full of spiritually renewed people will set a city on fire. Listen, we could change Santa, we could change Texas if just the people in this room right now actually experienced a spiritual renewal. And then he says, figs. I'm going to give you figs. Vines talks about spiritually renewal or a spiritual renewal of energy. Figs talks about a physical renewal of energy, okay? Figs speaks of rejuvenation and physical energy given by a supernatural source. In other words, the fig anointing, those of you that remember Caleb, the old man, uh, that, that Moses had prompted before he died, he promised him a mountain. And he, he didn't get that mountain while he was a young man. He's a very old man now. And he goes and he asks, he asked Joshua, the new leader, he said, can I have my mountain? And Joshua said, well, I'm going to need to send somebody with you to hold your walker for you. And Caleb said, I'm as strong now as I was when I was 40 years old. Give me my mountain. And Caleb and his boys went up the mountain, fought the devil off it by themselves. And there were figs all over the mountain. This is where God supernaturally takes a body that is run down and tired, a body that is unhealthy, a body that has been broken by life, and supernaturally, he gives you energy. He fills you up with energy when you should be running out. He fills you up with strength when you should be running low. This is the fig anointing. I declare the fig anointing over every family in this church right now in the name of Jesus. I don't really feel you pulling on me. It's okay. This is a forced blessing. I don't feel you grabbing. I don't feel your hunger. But this is a forced blessing from the Lord. Everybody holler, give me the figs. Give me the figs. If you're sick in your body, holler, give me the figs. If you got cancer or another disease, holler, give me the figs. If you're run down physically, holler, give me the figs. Pomegranates, spiritually, I gotta hurry. Pomegranate spiritually speaks of opportunities. Let me see how I want to say this. Sometimes you're starving not to, not to, to fulfill an opportunity. Sometimes you're starving just to have one. Not even saying that you would ultimately make the decision to do it or not, because every opportunity is not a good opportunity. But sometimes when you're a creator, sometimes when you're a builder, sometimes when you've got something burning down on the inside, sometimes it's an insult to your nature that nobody wants you. Nobody's calling. Nobody's hiring you. No, no, nobody's coming after what you've got on the inside. On the flip side, if you've got a lot of opportunities, 
you don't have to take them for them to bless you because it blesses you just to know the opportunity is there. Pomegranate speaks of opportunity because it is the fruit in our world with the most seeds in it. Not all of them are going to get planted. You couldn't, not in a day. Certain process you have to go through to plant a seed. But it's just beautiful that they are there. Opportunities are coming to your life. You're going to have to use wisdom with this one. This one isn't a totally good thing. There are some things that will come that you will need to say no to. But nonetheless, whether you have the wisdom to manage it or not, opportunity is coming to your life. Opportunity is coming to your family. Opportunity is coming to your business. Opportunity is coming from the Lord. Lift your right hand and say, I receive opportunity. Next, he says, olive oil. The anointing in this ministry is increasing. The anointing on your life as a member of this church is increasing. Everybody say, anoint me. Every person that Jesus saved, he gives a gift to. Not just the preacher, not just the apostle, not just the prophet. Every person that Jesus saved, he gives a gift to. And in order for those gifts to be activated, you need the oil of heaven's anointing to flow on your gift. I'm telling you right now, whatever your gift is, whatever your lane is, whatever God has called you to do, whatever God has gifted you to do, your anointing is increasing. If you're called to intercessory prayer, you need to get an extra box of tissue because your anointing to pray is increasing. If you're called to serve in any capacity, you better pray because your anointing is increasing. There will be people that are called by God just to hand out boxes of food at the food pantry, but the next time you hand out a box and that person receives it, they're going to get healed in their body because they touched the same box you were touching. Your anointing is increasing. The anointing on the members of this church is going to increase to the point where people get saved in H-E-B in the grocery line because the oil that's on you is increasing. Throw up both your hands and say, increase my anointing. And finally, and finally, for the sake of time, the last one he said, he said, I'm going to give you honey. Honey. Honey is always a type in scripture of a sweet reward after bad times. A sweet reward. Oh, you don't hear me. I wish you. Let me back it up. Can I back it up? I know it's. Can I back it up? You remember when a lion came out to kill Samson? The devil sent a lion to kill him. The Bible said the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he fought that lion with his bare hands and ended up killing it. It was a battle, but he ended up killing it. But how many know you get a little tired after the adrenaline rush and, and the force of having to fight something so difficult? Bible said he was, he was walking by the carcass of that lion a couple of days later after the coyotes had picked it clean. And the Bible said he looked inside the carcass of the battle he had sweat to win. And he saw honey 
in the carcass of the lion. It's a type of a sweetness, a sweet finish to a hard-fought victory. You remember? You remember when Saul had his armies pursuing and chasing the enemy? And, uh, and Saul, he, he, because he had given himself over to the devil, he would make unusual religious um, edicts and commands that had nothing to do with what God was saying. So he said, he said, I want every man in the army to fast. Don't eat while you pursue the enemy. And the Bible says they did chase the enemy and they were fighting the enemy. But all of Saul's soldiers, after a couple of days, started falling like flies because they hadn't eaten anything. Here's a problem. The messenger that Saul sent to Jonathan to tell him that Jonathan didn't get the message. So the Bible says Jonathan, he found some honey and he told all of his band and his soldiers to come over and they all dipped their stabs in honey and the Bible says it refreshed them and they went out and won the rest of the war because honey is a type of a sweet finish after a hard battle. Those of you that have been in a hard battle this year, wave after wave of affliction, wave after wave of difficulty, crying yourself to sleep, feeling the stress in your chest, going through it. God sent me here to tell you a sweet end, a sweet finish is coming to your life. The honey is coming. I don't know who it is. The honey is coming. I don't know who it's for. The honey, the honey, the honey is come. Stand on your feet and give the Lord a praise all over the house this morning. Come on, praise him. Come on, praise him. Lift up your voice.